folks, it's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Steve Williamson here. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. We seem to have a little glitch uh, this morning in that our guest is, uh, hasn't called in, and I don't know why. These things happen very rarely on Democratic Perspective. I didn't want to go ahead and broadcast uh, an old sh- older show because I, I still don't know if we will hear from him. Um, I think that what I want to talk a little bit about today is is really the history of democratic perspective. Um, we began ten years ago. Um, uh, Tom Tabak originally uh, contacted me um, uh, via email and was offering to sell time on this station and I took this to the um, Democrats of the Red Rocks, and uh, they didn't want to support it. Um, the, the station has a very, very far right-wing reputation then, and, uh, uh, and they didn't want to support it. So I waited a year, and then I started it. Ah, our caller, I think, is here. Hello, Professor Cole, are you there? I am here. Oh, I don't have my earphones on. Hang on, folks. I'm getting old. Hello, uh, Professor Cole? Yes. Ah, there you are. Well, good. <laughs> I'm glad you called in. Um, all right. So uh, what we're going to be talking about is a little bit different from a, a show. We do local shows. We do national shows. We do international shows. We do um, local issues. We do... Uh, <laughs> I guess intellectual issues, and today we're doing something different. We're looking at um, Professor Juan Cole. He's a professor at uh, at the University of Michigan. Um, he has a famous web um, blog, really website, uh, Informed Comment, which uh, attracts a lot of attention, has a lot of readers over the years. But today we're talking about uh, Professor Cole's new book and. It's a translation of the Rubiata of Omar Khayyam. And um, I thought this was a, a political topic in the sense that the Khayyam poems, these quatrains, present a very different, more complex picture of the Middle East and the people of the Middle East and their values and their thinking. Um, they're also quite profound, many of them. And so, uh, let me uh, let's tell us a little bit about the uh, the Rubiat uh, professor. Is it written by one person, for example? Is there a, can you fix a time when the when the uh, the poems were collected or put together? Well, the uh, the story about it uh, that was accepted for a long time is that the poetry uh, is is Persian. Poetry, four-line uh, poems, as you say, quatrains, uh, uh, was produced by the astronomer and mathematician Omar Khayyam, uh, who died in 1132. Uh, but 
my researchers suggest to me that he was what uh, uh, is often called a, a frame author. Uh, it, it's sort of like, you know, the, the um, Thousand and One Nights uh, are all said to be stories told by the uh, by uh, Scheherazade uh, to escape being executed. And uh, so all the stories, which were actually written by various people in various cities, Cairo and Aleppo and so forth, all of the Thousand and One Night stories are attributed to Shahrazad. I think this poetry is like that, uh, that the, the poetry is written by various people over centuries, uh, but they all uh, attributed it to Omar Khayyam as a frame author because scientists were known to be skeptical about religious verities. And the poetry is relentlessly skeptical. And so I think they adopted um, Omar Khayyam as kind of their patron saint for this kind of poetry. Otherwise, it doesn't seem reasonable or, or obvious to make the greatest, basically greatest scientist in the uh, Persian world, the Middle um, Ages, to be the author of of sometimes what a thousand of uh, these quatrains, a thousand of these poems. Um, why don't you read a, a few of them? Professor Cole has some uh, new translations from um, um, the the Persian. Um, the when these poems, I guess we should. I guess I go back a little bit. When these poems hit uh, the England particularly with a translation by uh, uh, Fitzgerald, they, they sent off a kind of storm, an electrical, uh, intellectual electrical uh, storm among um, among intellectuals, particularly pre-Aphilite painters and writers. And uh, it was as if, as if someone dropped a kind of intellectual, emotional, spiritual bomb right in the middle of Victorian England. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that before we go to the poems? Oh, sure. Well, as you say, uh, Edward Fitzgerald was a um, man of leisure who had a Cambridge degree and uh, uh, learned some Persian. And he came across these poems uh, in a manuscript at Oxford. And uh, he translated uh, uh, 50-some of them and actually self-published. Uh, but uh, they went viral. Uh, and and for the next hundred years, and not only in England but in the United States and really all English-speaking areas, uh, they were just beloved. Uh, people memorized them. Uh, people gave the, the book as gifts. By 1900, you had a new edition of the poetry coming out every single day, and it was mysterious to uh, the publishers because. The, the editions weren't different from one another in any particular way, although some began to have illustrations. Uh, Elihu Vedder did these romantic-style illustrations of lovers. Uh, and um, But uh, even just uh, pulp uh, paperbacks came out with the poetry in it, and, and they sold like hotcakes. Uh, and uh, the phenomenon tapered off in the 1970s. So when I tell people uh, that I translated it, if, if they're... You know, maybe over 60, they, they start quoting the poetry to me. If, if they're younger than that, sometimes they look at me blankly and they don't know what this is. But it was uh, enormously in influential. You know, T.S. Eliot uh, started writing poetry under its influence. Um, uh, 
uh, was well thought of by all the modernists, uh, Wallace Stevens and um, uh, and uh, Robert Frost's um, stopping by the woods on a snowy night uh, is actually an homage to this poetry. It, it's, oh. it's in the same meter and verse as Fitzgerald's, and it has some of the same themes. Um, it's, it brings a message, or many of the quatrains bring a message that, uh, that was, was new to Victorian England. And uh, there's a, I want to read it, um, some stanzas by a, uh, a woman named Iris DeMint, who was a very, very popular uh, folk singer, I guess you'd say, oh, 10, 15 years ago, had this wonderful uh, voice that sounded like, you know, uh, beautiful Appalachian wine. And her, and I think this captures what some of the, the poems say, and it's very rare to hear this in in the modern world. And she says, everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody is worrying about where they're going to go when the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain, so it's all the same to me. I think I'll let the mystery be. And she goes on with a whole bunch of charming lyrics about some people say you're coming back as carrots and peas and stuff. Uh, beautiful voice, but it has that. It has some of the what I hear in, in uh, the Omar Khayyam poetry. Oh, yeah, though that sounds like it's very similar, and who knows, but there's uh, some influence there. Uh, uh, because uh, the poet, high on poetry, the, the Rubaiyat, uh, as I said, uh, was everywhere uh, for so many decades and uh, so influential uh, on a whole range of American uh, cultural figures. Uh, you know, um, uh, the Beats, uh, Jack Kerouac, and, and so forth, were fascinated with this poetry and wove it into their work. And uh, um, even the, uh, the the author who uh, invented uh, Conan the Barbarian, Robert E. Howard, uh, was a great fan of this poetry. And I think some of the exotic settings and uh, themes in, in uh, the Conan stories uh, uh, you know, we're very much influenced by Fitzgerald's translation. It, it presents a different point of view. In other words, uh, uh, Muslims and Christians have been absorbed for hundreds and hundreds of years on questions of going to heaven or going to hell or punishment for for deeds um, and a focus on um, the next world. And I certainly, in the, you know, I have some experience talking with Muslims, they had sort of the same feeling that we're living this life for the next life in the other world, which will be much, much better. This poetry, these ideas point to something very different, right? Well, this poetry, on the whole and by and large, does not believe in an afterlife. Yeah. Uh, it, it has a little fun with people who do. Uh, it says you're not, you know, you're not... Uh, uh, a piece of gold that they'll big, dig you back up after you're under the ground, uh, or you're not a tulip uh, because tulips are perennials uh, that pop up, volunteer every year. You're not a tulip that you're going to pop back up out of the ground. Uh, so um, uh, this poetry thinks uh, when you die and get buried, that's it. It's over. I came out. Game over. And uh, therefore, uh, you should really pay attention to how you live your life. It it, it doesn't. 
it doesn't authorize you to be an SOB just because there's no heaven or hell, no reward or punishment in the afterlife. Uh, actually, I think the poetry makes the point that it's all the more important to have a life well lived uh, if, if there's not, in fact, an afterlife. Yeah, one of the uh, quatrains I was looking at, at it was, don't worry about drinking, you know, wine, uh, because you're going to end up being mud and made into, uh, uh, you know, a mug to drink wine from. So you're going back in into the earth, and that's pretty much it. It can be read a lot of different ways, because... Um, the mis- the mystical take on this is not to say that there isn't a afterlife, but just to say that it's not something that you you do. Morality can't come from the fact you're going to be rewarded or punished. If you're going to do something moral, it has to be based on doing something moral. If there's an afterlife, you know, fine, but it's not relevant in the way that traditionally Christians and Muslims have thought it was. And I, I wonder if you under, if you have a take on why this had so much impact in Victorian England. I mean, it's a much more structured society. The number of people who can read and their literary or stuff is much, much smaller than in our, our society. There's no or very little mass culture in that point. But this this thing takes takes England by storm. What is it telling people that they want to hear or that they resonate with? Well, I I think uh, there was a great deal of dissatisfaction in Victorian England and in the United States in the Gilded Era, which which is when it took off over here as well. There was dissatisfaction with uh, uh, with the establishment. Um, you'd had uh, uh, Darwin's uh, work published uh, the same year that the Rubaiyat came out, uh, and people were beginning to be more skeptical about some religious verities. Um, you'd had the discovery of uh, uh, the dinosaur bones and uh, kind of the uh, deep history of the earth. Uh, so, you know, uh, Bishop Usher famously decided that the world was uh, 6,000 and some years old uh, based on the genealogies in the Bible. And uh, by the you know 1870s, no educated person uh, could easily believe that, uh, given what the archaeologists were finding. So there were all these scientific shocks to religious verities. Uh, and then, uh, uh, as is well known, the, the Victorian era was very straight-laced. As late as 1858, there was a blasphemy law and a law about uh, mood behavior in, in, in Britain, uh, and um, something that John Stuart Mills and the utilitarians argued against. Uh, and so there was all this ferment uh, around, uh, uh, you know, restrictions on individual liberties and uh and the place of religion in the thought of educated people. Uh, and, and this poetry appealed very widely. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, we have stories of, uh, well, there's one story that was told by uh, a former Secretary of State uh, named Hayes, who was uh, close to Lincoln, 
who uh, said he was out west and he um, he was camping uh, near another uh, party. And in the morning, uh, the other party were, were prospectors and cowboys. They got up in the morning and they were making their uh, coffee on a, a fire and, and they started reciting uh, uh, the Rubaiyat. Uh, so this was the late 19th century out in the Old West, and, and those were probably not <clears throat> college-educated people, let us say, uh, but they loved it. Uh, and uh, so uh, I think it, uh, it, it people became mature about uh, some of these issues in this era, and they were unafraid to face them head-on. And, and this poetry seems to have been an aid to a kind of self-secularization and it, it probably had the same effect in the Muslim world because it was around for hundreds of years. I, I, I've read that it wasn't particularly popular. Still, it presents a portrait and, and voices, really, as well as a voice uh, of people who are not part of the intellectual, political establishment. It, it downplays the the uh, power, secular power, secular hierarchy, religious um, uh, dominance, religious uh, control. Uh, it's a different um, voice. It's it's sort of, uh, in some ways, it's written for Omar Khayyam, but it's it's kind of a voice of the people, or a voice of a lot of a lot of people who are living their lives and 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 writing uh, poetry about it. Yes, uh, all of those things are, are true. Although, I would say that the impression that it wasn't popular in uh, um, uh, the in Iran and, and the Persian-speaking world uh, is is probably not true. I think, you know, educated people have a canon of poetry that they love, Hafez and uh Rumi and, and and so forth, and uh, uh, it is true that those are very popular. But when a lithograph came along in the Middle East in the 19th century, and you know printing was late over there, uh, this uh, uh, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam was always included in those early lithographs, and um, I think it kind of had an underground popularity that uh, was much more widespread than the uh, you know the literati admitted. Why don't you read some of your translations of the poetry, some of your uh, favorite stanzas? Um, Professor Akolo explains it's broken down into quatrains, and there are different versions of it with different numbers and in different places, right? But do you have some favorites that you'd like to yeah, read? Yeah, I think uh, there are a few that I could read that would illustrate some of the uh, points we've been making. Uh, here's one. It says, in monasteries, temples, and retreats, they fear hellfire and look for paradise. But those who know the mysteries of God don't let those seeds be planted in their hearts. So you, the mysteries of, of, of paradise and, and hell are not relevant to the way you should live your human life is, is that that's right yeah that's right well, it's the fear of hellfire and hope of paradise if that's why you're behaving as you do then you're doing it wrong yeah and and to some extent all the mystics say basically the same thing they discard the 
the um, the hierarchies. They discard the bifurcation of heaven and hell and this life and another life um, and try to get you to focus on um, the flow of this life. Do you have other poems? Um, yeah, here's one. Uh, it's an attack on superstition and astrology. So it says, Good. don't blame the stars for virtues or for faults or for the joy and grief decreed by fate. For science holds the planets all to be a thousand times more helpless than are we. And some of it is um, is uh, has a kind of an erotic tinge to it. I was looking at your number 81. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tulip's face attracts the morning dew. And in the garden, purple petals kneel. In fairness, rosebuds gladden my heart most when they lift up the hymns about them. Their hymns about them. I'm not good at reading poetry. So so there's an erotic ending to the poem. At least seems to be. It could be a true. Yeah, that yeah I think you're reading it correctly in that regard. Yeah, there's a lot of love poetry in here. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it... It, it says that if, if you if you're not in love, then then you're not living your life well. Uh, your heart should ache every day. Uh, and um, here's one: um, too bad if your heart isn't scorched. If there's no one you're pining for who makes it leap, that day on which love does not ache in you is the most wasted day of your whole life. Yeah. How about a couple more? All right. Uh, here's a, a little bit of a mystical one. At first, I sought the pen of destiny and the eternal tablet it etched on, and hell and heaven and the world beyond. My sage then said, look for all four within. The writing pen is a, a very important in Islam as a, Metaphor of God's work, yeah, of, of God's predestination. So this is, here's a, a famous uh, love poem that um, uh, I tried my hand at. Fitzgerald's is is uh, is the one that uh, that's very beloved, but uh, I uh, I dared to to try a version of my own. Uh, this says, "A book of poetry, some ruby wine, and you, and half a loaf of bread. I don't need any more." When you and I are curled up in the great outdoors, our bliss outshines the glories of an emperor. Yeah, and I think that I was reading that um, Fitzgerald actually had two versions of it, of that stand, uh, that quatrain. One in in 1859, and the other one in 1889. And it's the one in 1889 I think that's the most famous. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want yeah, to read Fitzgerald it? Fitzgerald kept kept tinkering with his. Um, his uh, renderings, and uh, uh, some uh, scholars think it's one of the reasons that uh, the book became so popular and was often reprinted was that there was more than one version of each uh, of some of the poems. And so even if you memorized it, uh, you could always be surprised by another uh, version. Um, It's just uh, a seriousness. on, On social justice. Um, it, it, again, it's, it, I, I think astrology is critiqued in this uh, poetry as a proxy for critiquing religion because mm. it's less dangerous. 
Uh, but it says, signs of the Zodiac, you give something to every jackass. You hand them fancy baths, millworks, canals, while noble souls must, must gamble in hopes of winning their nightly bread. Who would give a fart for such a constellation? Right, right. So it, the poem systematically undercut both with being beautiful and on, with lots of different things, the kind of uptight traditional values of both the Muslim world and, and the Western world. And that's probably what really hit the Victorian. In other words, live life right now for whatever you can get out of it right now. Um, and there's a lot of, of, um, there are a lot, I think, some verses that sort of relax into life and not worry about the future, not worry about heaven and hell, not worry about what the king thinks or what this guy thinks, but relax into your, your daily life, your actual living existence. That's right. Um, uh, it, it, uh, it, it urges you to uh, chill. Uh, and I think uh, Victorian age needed that, uh, uh, that message. Um, very much. Uh, it, it, it also has a little bit of fun with with the hypocrisies of conventional ethics and religion. It, it is one poem is kind of a joke. It says, "Although I went in need into the mosque, I did not have my daily prayers in mind. Instead, I made off with a prayer rug. When it grew threadbare, I came back again." <laughs> yes. Uh, how about a couple more? For your love, I would bear a hundred strands of blame. And if I broke this vow, I'd pay the price. If I proved faithful to your cruelties, it would hurt less than to endure alone until the judgment day. And what's your take on that one? Does that one have a, anything beyond the, the, the kind of interpersonal? Um... Well, I, th- I think it's saying that we, 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 meaning in our lives is created by our investments in uh, in things like love for other people. And even though the lover is always cruel, uh, it's, it's worth it to make that sacrifice to remain faithful uh, to that love. Uh, and, 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 and that, in a way, you're doing so under eternity. Yeah, I had a friend who, who had a patient who was terribly, terribly worried about dying and structured his whole life about dying. And he lived to be 86 years old and died in complete senility, not even knowing what was going on. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, that's, uh, that, well, Hayam would appreciate that story. Um, uh, he says, uh, if you are drunk on wine, Hayam, be glad. Or if some beauty is in your lap. Be glad, for you will be as nothing in the end. Imagine that while you exist. Be glad. So I guess we cannot, can we, um, even looking at these poems and indirectly, can we imagine our own non-existence? Well, I think what Kayam is saying is that don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. It's time you're taking away from from living in the moment. Uh, you should concentrate on where you are now, not worry so much about where you're going to be in the future. Uh, it's not 
likely that you'll be any place in the distant future, but uh, that shouldn't take away from how you live at the moment. What is the role of the, uh, whole, the whole motif, I guess, is wine drinking. And uh, the Sufis have their uh, mystical take on it, and their poems sound in some ways similar to some of the Kayam collection. Um, and they mean something different. What? How did this begin that the poems are about wine drinking and they're in the Muslim world? They're in the at the edge of the Muslim world in Persia uh, and uh, near Chinese influences, near uh, uh, Asian, other Asian influence. How did that become the motif, motif for what the poems were about? Yeah, well, I think that there's a paradox in Muslim culture that, uh, technically speaking, uh, the, the Quran frowns on alcohol, uh, but it doesn't actually specify a punishment for drinking. One verse says that, you know, in, in drinking and gambling, there's good and bad, but the bad outweighs the good. Uh, and so there are always people who felt that the Quran didn't absolutely forestall you from drinking. Uh, and, that, and there were jurists who felt, well, it couldn't be punished if you were a wine bibber. It couldn't be punished because the Quran doesn't say how it would be punished. Uh, and then... I think, you know, in the old pre-Islamic Arab culture, uh, the warriors would have banquets and, and drink. It's kind of like uh, uh, the, the Norse legends of Valhalla and uh, and get drunk before they went into battle and it allowed them to kind of go berserk. And then, you know, there were, uh, as you say, Pan-Asian uh, poet, there was Pan-Asian poetry about drinking and inebriation. And people also experimented with alternative states of consciousness and in, in Sufism and Islamic mysticism in particular. And of course, being drunk is an alternative state of conscience, uh, consciousness to, to some extent. And sometimes people would experiment with uh, drugs or with, with uh, alcohol uh, as, as ways of getting into a different state of mind. But then, ironically enough, you know, praying in it or, or devoting themselves to God in it. So uh, it, it was a, a very complex thing, and I think the, the Sufi poets picked up the secular wine-bibbing of you know, courtiers and uh, elites uh, uh, as a metaphor for getting drunk on God. And uh, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to know uh, with a poet, whether they're talking about the metaphorical drunkenness or whether they're talking about actual uh, uh, rowdiness. And um, in my view, you know, Khayyam has been read, read in many ways. And in Iran, he tends to be read as a, as a Sufi mystic. Uh, in my view, he's talking about the real thing. He's, he's, this poetry is, is about the, the real wine, and it's about uh, having a good time. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, he says, uh, whenever I repented, I backslid. I've closed the door of honor and of shame. Don't blame me if I've got out of my mind, for I'm blind drunk on passion once again. Yeah, there's metaphors and, and things that I don't understand. And it, here's a, as a line that you've translated. Each branch is putting out its shoots as white as the hand of Moses. 
and every breath wafts with the life-giving breath of Jesus. And I think there are several that, that uh, Moses' hands are white, Jesus is presented as breath. Is that common? Is What does that mean? Yeah, well, those are uh, common uh, uh, tropes in, in Muslim poetry, and they actually have a biblical uh, basis. Uh, the, uh, there's a passage in the Old Testament where, you know, Moses is allowed by God to do various miracles. And, uh, his staff turns into a serpent. Uh, so one of these is that he puts his hand in his cloak, and when he takes it out, it's it's uh, it's pure white. Uh, and so, uh, and and then Jesus's breath is, you know, when he raised Lazarus, he he, he used his breath to do that, according to legend. So. Uh, this is a poem about spring, and in Iranian culture and, and Persian culture more widely, um, uh, the, the vernal equinox, uh, typically March 21st, uh, the first day of spring, is also the new year, mm-hmm. uh, which makes a little bit more sense than our having our new year in, in the midst of winter. Uh, so... Um, it's a time of, of renewal and uh, revivification, uh, and so uh, these miracles of the prophets are, are being compared to how the, the the blossoms come out on the on the plants, and uh, uh, the, the world is renewed. Um, let me see if I can find it. I'm going through. Um... Kindle. I'm not a big Kindle reader, so it takes me a while. I think it's number 81, I thought was. Um, okay. Um, uh, the, the tulip? Uh, yes. Yeah. The tulip's face attracts the morning dew, and in the garden purple petals kneel. In fairness, rosebuds gladden my heart most when they lift up their hems about themselves. So we talked about this a little bit. That This is a... Um, um, a poem celebrating nature and again, you know, blooming and, uh, and renewal. But uh, his, his turn of phrase kind of gives it this erotic uh, overtone. Are many of the quatrains like that? What I guess? Let me think. What I want to ask, and that is, what I what is the core of of the poem that attracted so many million readers over? Hundreds of years that that excites the mind and heart, and I see so many elements in it when I read the translation. Well, I think you know lots of things are going on here. There's a challenge to conventional morality. Uh, you know, you can't be a, a, a clock watcher. You can't go along to get along. Uh, you have to take your your fate in your own hands. Uh, and and so there's a, a, you know attack on the on the conventional, and and then there's this uh, questioning of, of verities uh, and uh, questioning of the meaning of life. And we don't know. The poetry says you know why we're here, uh, where we're going, what, uh, what's the point of all this, uh, and, and so there's this kind of existential um, questioning involved. But then. The, the 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 poetry prescribes as as the cure for that existential anxiety 
living the good life, uh, enjoying yourself, uh, not being ridden by guilt. Uh, and again, it, it, it doesn't urge you to betray anybody or to hurt anyone's feelings. Uh, that would be also wrong uh, from the point of view of this poetry. Uh, but uh, I, I think, you know, in the same way that John Stuart Mill and the utilitarians thought that uh, there, there are no victimless uh, crimes, there, there's nothing that you could do that didn't harm somebody else that would necessarily be, uh, um, be wrong. And, and so if, if you want to uh, stay home with your lover and, and the two of you uh, uh, get inebriated together, uh, conventional society would would frown on that, uh, but uh, uh, th- that that's where the meaning of life might lie. Uh, so I, I think it, it's an authorization to act out. On the one hand, uh, it's an authorization uh, not to be conventional, uh, and uh, I think that's why it had such an enduring appeal. Uh, to rebels of all sorts. You know, the pre-Raphaelites were, were rebels in their own day in, in, in the 1860s and 70s in, in Britain. Uh, and then the, the Beats and, and, the, and the Hippies uh, loved this poetry for the same reason. How about, let's read, if you could read 28. Sure. 28 and 30. You cannot pierce the veil of mystery or grasp this strange arrangement of the world. You do not have a home, save in black earth. Start drinking, since this story isn't short. It's being in the black earth that's not short, right? Yeah, uh, being in the black earth, of course, is forever. Uh, I I think... Also, however, uh, the, the story that you just never are going to know what all this is about is, is, is a long story. And, uh, and the, the way to get through this interminable story is, is, is to, get, to have a drink. Um, um, then, uh, was it 30 that you said? Yeah, I think that your, your interpretation is better than my uh, take on it. You cannot pierce the veil of mystery or grasp the strange, I like that strange arrangement of the world, which is when you're, you're out in nature, it certainly, that really captures it. Yeah, and then 30. Yeah, the, uh, well, this is again a, a famous one uh, that uh, Fitzgerald's version became uh, a proverbial. Uh, I, I did it this way. The moving pen ignores the good and bad. Since long ago, it sketched the universe, decreeing what would be before all time. Our efforts cannot strike a single line. Let's talk about that one. Well, uh, you know, in a way, uh, because I think this poetry comes from different people uh, over centuries, uh, it is often self-contradictory. So a lot of the poetry is about your personal responsibility to make your life. Uh, And so there's kind of an individualist emphasis. Uh, But this poem uh, is uh, about how there are certain structures of life that are are givens, and you're just not going to be changing them, and therefore 
uh, there's no point in, in railing against uh, the way the universe is. Uh, interesting, uh, important point in um, in Islam, I think, that the world is written from the beginning. Um, or m- maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not an expert. How about 13? That's one of my favorite. Uh, okay, sure. If your quest has borne no fruit, it's because you're not on the straight and narrow. Those who've grasped the branch of truth know that today is just like yesterday, and the world's first day is like tomorrow. I particularly think the uh, the last two lines are profound. Know that today is just like yesterday. In what sense, you wonder? And the world's first day is like tomorrow. It's a really a, a deeply perceptive to me of, of time and as well as the structure of things. It, it's, it's not sure I could even interpret that in words. Know that today is just like yesterday. In what sense? And the world's first day is like tomorrow. Yeah, I think that uh, the poetry is saying that these ways we have of dividing up time into days and uh and uh, are artificial, and there's just one time, and, and, and we're in the flow. Yeah, and I think that's a profound point. Um, we've got we're running out of time in a bit, but can you have a? Do you have another couple of quatrains? Why? Well, because we have time. I'm getting th- uh, three minutes, so you. Yeah. Do you want to yeah. read a couple more? Uh, sure. Well, I, I just did want to say uh, before I do that that. Um, uh, I think your your point at the beginning of the show is so important that I think we have a lot of um, uh, stereotypes of the Middle East as being, you know, uh, uh, fanatics about religion and uh, uh, religion uh, sort of ruling life. And uh, I, I think this poetry is a good corrective uh, to see that there was, uh, even in medieval times, uh, there was dissent. Uh, there were alternative points of view. There was questioning. Uh, and there was a kind of Muslim uh, secularism all the way through, uh, which uh, then went on to appeal uh, to uh, British and, and American readers who uh, were facing uh, similar issues of religion and secularism. Uh, here's one, like cascading waters or a desert squall, another day of my life has fled. But I never feel regret for two days, the one that hasn't yet arrived and the one that long since passed. Yeah. I, the poetry, it strikes me as very profound. I wanted to thank you for being with us. It's a little unconventional. Uh, Professor Cole's been on the show, I don't know, pretty much every year for the last four or five years. And uh, generally we start out talking about politics, of which he's an expert on the, on the Middle East. Uh, historian, and I wanted to do something a little bit different today because I uh, I liked his translation. I liked what the the poem expressed in both Islamic and in in Western culture. Thank you for being with us, uh, Professor Cole. I uh, hope to talk to you again, and uh, I appreciate all the poetry reading. To be able to request quatrains on demand, I guess is a, is a privilege. Thank you very much for being with us. Um, next week, we're going to have a show about democratic perspective. Uh, Hava and I will be discussing our, our different political viewpoints. 
and be discussing how the show began and where we think it's going. Um, and after that, we have several shows on um, social um, security, on some of the changes uh, taking place there. We have um, uh, a series of shows we're going to do on local issues as well as on national issues. So anyway, I would like to thank you all for being with us. I really appreciate it. Check us next week. It'll be a different kind of show again. Thank you very much, folks. DVID.org. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.